For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Warning. This episode contains discussions of violent crimes against children that may be upsetting to some people. Listener discretion is advised. When you're little, there are things grown-ups will tell you about the world and the way it works. And then there are the things they don't. Some things they share as a warning, things meant to protect you from harm. Don't touch the hot stove or you'll get burned. Don't go out in the cold without wearing your jacket or you'll get sick. And most importantly, don't talk to strangers. But one thing they rarely tell you about that one is why. In a way, that's to protect you too. I grew up in a pretty typical Detroit suburb. The neighborhood I grew up in was about 10 miles away from the big city. But it might as well have been a million miles away for how different it felt. It was quiet with tree-lined streets and modest three-bedroom homes. Everyone knew their neighbors. Some days I'd leave the house in the morning and not come back until dinner time. No one ever knew where me or my friends were. Everyone just assumed we were safe. Like there was some sort of invisible force field around our neighborhood keeping the evils of the world away. But that was a false sense of security. Because back in those days there were neighborhoods a lot like mine. Where some kids would leave the house. And just never return. When you're little you spend your nights worrying about the boogeyman in your closet. Or the monster living beneath your bed. But one thing you'd never think about are the monsters in the big scary world outside. Because when you're young and innocent, the outside world seems like a safe and happy place full of adventure. But the things grown-ups don't often tell you is that there are real monsters in the world. Human monsters with smiling faces, who seem nice on the surface. But inside, they're really hiding their teeth and claws. And oh yes, they bite. When I was about six years old, there was a day I admit I only have hazy memories of. A lot of the gaps in my memory had been filled in by my older brother, who was there that day and witnessed the whole thing. One day I was out playing by myself. My big brother was nearby hanging out with some of his friends on the front porch of our house. None of them wanted to play with a little baby like me, so they all kept their distance. It was a bright spring day. I remember that. I couldn't tell you exactly what I was doing, but I do know I was a short distance away from everyone. And standing near the curb. Too close. That was when a rusting brown sedan with a rattling muffler came cruising down the street. And pulled to a stop right in front of me. The passenger door swung open and the driver called out to me. I don't remember what he looked like, but my brother tells me he had long brown hair and a beard. He had a friendly voice, and he asked me a question I couldn't quite make out. I took a tentative step a little closer to the car, and this time I heard him when he asked me where a particular street was in our neighborhood. 
That made me perk up. I was nervous and shy back then, but this man seemed friendly enough, and I was eager to be helpful. I pointed and gave the man directions which way he should go. He asked me to come closer so I could show him. He said, why don't I just hop in and he'll drive me around the corner so I could show him the street. He didn't know the neighborhood, and he could really use the help. But before he or I could say anything further, that was when my brother and his friends came rushing up behind me. I don't think he saw them until they came running toward his car. They were all shouting at the creep to get the hell away from me. And just like that, the man yanked the passenger door shut. Then he gunned the engine and sped off. None of us ever saw the man again. I don't think any of us even told our parents about the incident, but to this day my brother and I still mention it from time to time. I don't know what that man wanted, but I'm old enough now to know it wasn't anything good. There are things I didn't know back then that might have kept me from getting as close to that man's car as I did. Things that should have sent me running in the opposite direction, screaming for help the second he pulled up and opened his car door. Over time, as I went to school, I'd attend assemblies where the class would meet Officer Friendly from the local police department, who warned us kids not to do drugs, and especially don't talk to strangers. But one thing Officer Friendly never explained to us, not exactly, was why. He, like most other adults, just gave vague warnings about the bad things that can happen. When the smiling people finally get you alone and show you their teeth and claws. And that's because there are certain things grown-ups think a child should never hear. Things about the way the world really works. And the terrible things that some people do to the innocent. It turns out that right around that same time when some creep tried luring me into climbing into his car... There was a monster on the loose not too far from where I grew up, and this monster was murdering children. Between 1976 and 1977, four children in Oakland County, Michigan were kidnapped, held captive, then murdered, before their bodies were dumped in a public area. To this day, the killer, or killers, have never been caught. I'm Nate Hale. And I still wonder what would have happened to me if my big brother and his friends hadn't happened to be there that day. And this is The Conspirators. Between February 15, 1976 and March 16, 1977, two boys and two girls, between the ages of 10 and 12 years old, were abducted and murdered en route to or from their homes in various cities throughout Oakland County, Michigan. In each case, the killer or killers would hold these children captive for as long as 19 days before murdering them. Each of their bodies were then placed in a public area to be found. Three of the children were asphyxiated to death while the fourth was shot. Both boys had been sexually assaulted while the girls were not. These four deaths would trigger what was up until then the largest murder investigation in U.S. history. And to this day, no one has ever been convicted of the crimes. 
The first victim was 12-year-old Mark Stebbins of Ferndale, a working-class neighborhood just south of Birmingham. He was a shy and good-natured 7th grader at Lincoln Junior High School. Mark loved baseball and fishing. He collected toy soldiers and loved everything about the military. He wanted to join the Marines when he grew up, only he never got the chance. His mother worked as a bartender at the local American Legion Hall. On the afternoon of February 15, 1976, Mark was at the Legion Hall with his mother where they were throwing a party. Mark was hanging out watching a pool tournament for a little while, but eventually he grew bored and decided he wanted to walk home to watch a World War II movie called Destination Tokyo on TV. He left the Legion Hall at around 1.15 p.m. and was planning on making the three-block trek back to his house. Only he never got there. Later on, Mark's mother called home and spoke to Mark's older brother Mike, asking him if Mark made it home okay. Only Mark wasn't there, and Mike didn't know where he was. Mark Stebbins' mother soon phoned the Ferndale police, but at first they weren't too concerned. He probably just wandered off and lost track of time, they told her. They said there hadn't been a kidnapping in the city in over a decade. But as time wore on and Mark didn't return home, his mother finally convinced the police to take the disappearance seriously. Officers were dispatched to the neighborhood and began a door-to-door -door search. Only no sign of Mark Stebbins was found. At least not right away. Four days later, Mark's body was discovered in a snowbank leaning against a brick wall toward the rear of an office parking lot in the nearby city of Southfield, approximately three-quarters of a mile away from his home. Mark's body was fully clothed in a blue parka and blue jeans. He had been sexually abused with a foreign object, then smothered to death. Whoever abducted Mark held him captive for five days before asphyxiating him just a few hours before his body was discovered. It's believed his murderer either placed an object like a pillow over his face or pinched his nose and mouth shut while he suffocated. There were rope burns on the boy's neck, wrists, and ankles, indicating he had been bound during his captivity. He also had two circular lacerations on his scalp. Some investigators have speculated that those two circular lacerations might have come from the barrel of a shotgun being jammed against his skull while others suggest those marks might have come from the trunk lock of a car as Mark was being shoved inside. One rumor that is often reported that can be dispelled regarding Mark Stebbins' remains is that his body was thoroughly washed and scrubbed, and his clothes were laundered by his abductor. The Oakland County Medical Examiner's report actually states that Mark's shirt and other clothing were dirty and bloodstained, and his body had the distinct odor of perspiration around it. There were also synthetic carpet fibers and possibly human and animal hairs recovered from Mark's body as well. There are many other reports that do claim that at least some of the other victims had their clothes washed and their bodies bathed prior to death. Because of the way the murder of Mark Stebbins straddled two different cities, that meant both the Ferndale and Southfield Police Departments became involved in investigating the crime. This would just be the first of many jurisdictional conflicts that made the investigation more complex. Investigators from both cities began looking at a number of known sex offenders who might have been in the area at the time of Mark Stebbins' abduction. Early on, police received a tip from a parole officer that they should check out a recently released sex offender named Archibald Sloan, who was working as a tow truck driver and living in nearby Farmington Hills at the time. 
Police questioned the man and took some tape samples of hairs and fibers from inside his car, but could find no direct physical evidence tying him to the murder of Mark Stebbins. Just three days before Christmas, 12-year-old Jill Robinson was upset about something, but refused to talk about it. Her mother Carol was a court reporting teacher, and she had been divorced from Jill's father, an English teacher at Oakland Community College, for about a year. On the night of December 22nd, Carol was busy making dinner. She asked Jill to help her out by making some biscuits, but Jill refused. She and her mother exchanged words and eventually Jill's mother told her, if you don't like it here, why don't you go outside and sit on the porch until your attitude changes? Instead, unbeknownst to Carol, Jill packed her Levi's denim backpack, then went and got her bicycle from the shed behind the house. It's believed she was attempting to ride to her father's house in neighboring Birmingham when she disappeared. A witness would later tell police she saw Jill riding her bike past a hobby shop near 13 Mile Road in Woodward Avenue, heading north toward Birmingham. Later on, Jill's bike would be found abandoned behind a store on North Main Street in nearby Royal Oak. Meanwhile, Carol thought her daughter had only gone outside to pout on the porch for a little while before she'd come back in. Only by 6 p.m., Carol realized Jill wasn't there. She soon got in her car to drive around looking for her daughter, only she couldn't find her anywhere. At 11.30 p.m., Jill's father reported her missing to the police. Initially, police treated Jill like a runaway. But by Christmas Day, the police had changed their tune and now they believe Jill may have been abducted. Their suspicions were proved correct on December 26th, when the 6th grader's body was discovered along the shoulder of northbound I-75, a quarter mile north of Big Beaver Road. This was a pretty brazen act by the killer considering this was an area that was within eyesight of the Troy Police Department. A motorist with a CB radio notified police he had discovered the girl's body alongside the road at 8.45 a.m. She was fully clothed and still wearing her backpack. Jill had been shot in the face with a single shotgun blast. Some investigators would later speculate that Jill may have been asphyxiated in the same manner as the other victims. But when she was placed on the roadside, the weight of her torso might have caused air that was trapped in her lungs to be expelled, making it seem like she was still alive. This may have caused the killer or killers to panic and shoot her in order to ensure she was dead. Initially, there weren't any real connection made between the murders of Mark Stebbins and Jill Robinson. After all, these two murders occurred nearly a year apart and did have their differences. But it wouldn't be another year before the next murder occurred. And by the time the next child disappeared, police began to worry there was a serial killer loose in Oakland County. Ten-year-old Christine Mihalich of Berkeley was the third victim. On Sunday, January 2nd, 1977, Christine begged her mother to allow her to walk to a 7-Eleven store on 12 Mile Road in order to buy a teen magazine. For Christmas, Christine had received a portable record player along with the latest album by Donnie and Marie Osmond, and the girl was obsessed with the duo. The 7-Eleven was only four and a half blocks away from her home, but when Christine didn't return home, her mother called the Berkeley police and they soon swarmed the area. A clerk at the 7-Eleven recalled selling the magazine to Christine. By now, many reporters were also beginning to connect the dots that there might be a serial killer abducting children. In each case, it was believed the killer took the children to an unknown location and held them captive for a number of days before murdering them. 
It's because of this, as well as the reports that the killer fed and bathed them, that some news stories began referring to the perpetrator as the babysitter. Because these crimes were straddling so many different jurisdictions throughout Oakland County, a massive task force would be formed in the city of Southfield that was made up of dozens of officers from multiple police departments. On January 21, 1977, a full 19 days after Christine was abducted, the girl's body was found by a mailman along a rural road in Franklin Village. Christine Mihalich was the victim who was held in captivity the longest. Like the others, her body was fully clothed. When they found her, the girl's remains were partially covered by snow. Like Mark Stebbins, Christine Mihalich had been smothered to death less than 24 hours before her body was discovered. Like Jill Robinson, Christine had not been sexually molested. News reports began issuing dire warnings to parents and children to not trust anyone. Kids were being told at school not to talk to strangers and to even be suspicious of people they knew. Some investigators would come to speculate the killer might be someone in a position of authority, like a priest or perhaps even a police officer. Someone children would instinctively trust and go with willingly. The Joint Police Task Force vetted more than 4,000 known sex offenders living in Oakland County. Among the thousands of tips that poured into investigators, one in particular stood out. Police in Flint had a 27-year-old suspected child molester in custody named Gregory Green. After Green's arrest, he confessed to police that he had a friend, 25-year-old Christopher Bush, who he said was the person responsible for murdering the first victim, Mark Stebbins. Green also admitted that he and Bush routinely worked together to abduct and molest children. Police soon arrested Bush, who turned out to be the son of a wealthy and prominent General Motors executive from Bloomfield Hills. Bush was surprisingly candid to police officers about his obsession with young children and the many times he and his partner Green would abduct and molest kids. After his arrest, Bush told police he wanted to stop by his house to pick up his toothbrush. Police eagerly agreed in the hope they would find further evidence against him. And did they ever? Inside Bush's bedroom, they found a suitcase full of cut-out photographs from magazines featuring young children. They also found a collection of 8mm films featuring child pornography, a set of ropes with ligatures, and a shotgun, all of which appeared to tie Christopher Bush directly to the murders in Oakland County. Many investigators who have studied the case of the Oakland County child killer have speculated there may be more than one person involved because whoever was abducting children likely would have had to have had a job and other responsibilities that would have prevented a single individual from being able to watch the children 24 hours a day. Christopher Bush freely admitted to police that he and Green liked to molest children. He even admitted to fantasizing about tag-teaming with Green to abduct children in order to be able to hold them captive all day and night. But at the same time, he also denied having anything to do with the murders of Mark Stebbins, Jill Robinson, and Christine Mihalich. Both Bush and Green agreed to take polygraph examinations. And it's because of these lie detector tests that both men were cleared as suspects in the Oakland County child killings. Although the use of polygraphic evidence is considered highly controversial today, back in the 1970s, police still held the polygraph in high regard. The fact that a trained polygraph examiner said the men were being truthful when they said they had nothing to do with the murders was good enough for police to clear them. 
After that, it seems the names of Gregory Green and Christopher Bush got lost in the files among the hundreds of other suspects who were looked at and cleared. Nonetheless, Bush and Green did still face multiple charges of criminal sexual conduct against minors. Because Gregory Green did not come from the same wealthy background that Bush did, he was unable to post bail, but Bush's family was able to get him released. Although Green would be sentenced to life in prison, Bush would only receive probation and a $1,000 fine for the exact same charges. Then, less than a week later, after Bush walked free, on March 16, 1977, another child went missing. This was 11-year-old Timothy King of Birmingham. Tim's sister Kathy had loaned him 30 cents for him to walk to a pharmacy a few blocks away from their home to buy some candy. It's believed that Tim made it to the pharmacy and left through the rear door, but after that, he never returned home. This time the police didn't hesitate. Officers immediately jumped into action and began combing the area looking for Timothy King. Police began stopping and questioning motorists along every road. Helicopters were sent out flying overhead looking for any sign of Tim. Two days after Tim's disappearance, a witness came forward claiming to have seen the boy speaking to a man standing next to a blue AMC gremlin with a white stripe along the side. Police plastered the area with a sketch of the man along with images of a similar-looking blue gremlin. That car would go on to become an iconic figure in the investigation. Although over time, most investigators would come to think of it as a red herring that actually led detectives away from the real perpetrators. By now, the Michigan State Police had taken over what was known as the Oakland County Child Killer Task Force. Timothy's parents appeared on the evening news making a tearful plea to the kidnapper or kidnappers to please let their son go. By that point, the public knew what this all meant, that Tim King was probably still alive and being held captive. But the boy's time was growing short before he ended up dead alongside the road. During their interview, Tim's parents, Marion and Barry, begged whoever had him to please let him go. They mentioned that when Tim finally came home, they were going to feed him his favorite meal, Kentucky Fried Chicken. It appears that Tim's abductors watched the news, because when Tim's body was discovered six days later, his stomach contents revealed whoever had him fed him fried chicken. Unlike the other victims, Tim's body was the only one discovered outside Oakland County. His body was found alongside Gill Road in the city of Livonia, just over the county line into neighboring Wayne County. Like Mark Stebbins, Tim had been sexually assaulted with a foreign object before being suffocated approximately six hours before his body was found. Also like the others, reports state that Tim's body had been meticulously cleaned before being killed. Throughout the course of the investigation, 12 different police agencies sifted through more than 20,000 tips about the Oakland County child killer. But as time wore on and no arrests were made, the case grew colder and colder. Finally, on December 15, 1978, what was at the time the largest such task force in U.S. history shut down. It was many years later before the investigation began to heat up again. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. 
And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M. Dot com and check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. In 2005, Detective Corey Williams of the Livonia Police Department and later the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office was reading through the transcript of an unrelated case when he came across a statement by a suspected child molester named Richard Lawson, who said, I know who did the Michigan snow killings. Detective Williams had grown up in Oakland County during the mass panic that ensued while the killer was active, so he was well acquainted with the case. Williams interviewed Lawson, who said that they misquoted him. What he really said was the thought he might know who might have been involved. Lawson revealed that back during the mid-1970s, there was an active community of pedophiles who hung out around Detroit's Cass Corridor. Back then, the Cass Corridor was where you'd go to find illicit sex, drugs, and pretty much anything illegal. Lawson said that he and other pedophiles like himself would head down to the area to pick up underprivileged kids and coerce them with drugs, alcohol, and even the threat of violence. Lawson said that he and an associate named Bob Moore would film themselves molesting children and sell the films to a distributor in Amsterdam. As Detective Williams dug deeper into the story told to him by Richard Lawson, he soon learned of a connection to an even bigger scandal from elsewhere in Michigan. It turns out that one of Moore's biggest clients was a man named Francis Sheldon. He was a wealthy and prominent businessman who was also the owner of an isolated patch of land in Lake Michigan called North Fox Island. Originally, when Sheldon bought this tiny island in the 1950s, he told friends and colleagues he planned on building vacation homes on it. Only that's not what he did. Instead, he and a friend of his named Gerald Richards used the island to go into the child pornography business together. In July of 1976, the Michigan State Police in St. Clair County arrested Gerald Richards for molesting an 8-year-old boy who was so badly injured he was taken to the hospital. Richards was a 48-year-old elementary school gym teacher, part-time magician at children's parties, an amateur photographer who had once worked with his local police department shooting mugshots during the time his own father was a police officer. Later on, Richards got a job working in a pornographic bookstore. And that's where he learned about the illegal side of the business as well. As Richards got more involved in the illegal pornography business, he also began to indulge his personal obsession with molesting children. Richards victimized a 12-year-old neighbor whom he took under his wing as his magician's assistant. He used his child as a lure to help him entice other children. During the 1970s, there was a magazine being published called Better Life, a publication dedicated to the belief that grown men should be allowed to sexualize and have adult relations with young boys. It was through classified ads Gerald Richards ran in this magazine, where he met and eventually partnered with Francis Sheldon. The subsequent police investigation revealed that during the summers of 1975 and 1976, Sheldon began ostensibly using North Fox Island as a camp for underprivileged children. But what it really was, was a place where kids were brought to be molested and used for child pornography. Each season, Sheldon, Richards, and the other adults involved only brought five or six underprivileged boys to the island, 
officially so they could focus on their rehabilitation, as they described it. They actually received public praise for their charitable work and even received government subsidies for the camp. The boys were typically dropped off along the Lake Michigan coastline and transported to the island where they were given a free run of the place. That is, until it came to what was called picture time. This was the time when they were expected to pose for explicit photos or to be sexually assaulted on camera. Richards also claimed that several prominent individuals, including wealthy doctors, lawyers, and even politicians, would visit the island, and the boys were expected to do whatever these wealthy and powerful men wanted. After Gerald Richards was arrested and revealed to authorities what he and his business partner were really doing in North Fox Island, an arrest warrant was issued for Francis Sheldon. But it took so long for the authorities to issue the warrant that it gave Sheldon time to clean out his Ann Arbor home and flee to Amsterdam in his private plane. Gerald Richards only spent 10 years in prison for his crimes and has since died. Now, keep in mind, all these horrific events were happening right around the same time the Oakland County child killings were occurring. Yet no one back then seems to have made any sort of connection between North Fox Island and the Oakland County child murders. But they should have. You see, after Gerald Richards was arrested, he gave up some of the names of his clients. And among those names was Christopher Bush. By now, it seems pretty apparent that all roads in this investigation lead back to Christopher Bush and Gregory Green. If you do any sort of research on the Oakland County child killer case, their names will come up again and again. At the same time, over the years, there have been plenty of other names that would be tossed into the mix as potential suspects, including Theodore Kaczynski, the Unabomber, and the infamous serial killer John Wayne Gacy. But neither of those were ever considered very credible suspects. To many investigators, Bush and Green remain among the top suspects in the Oakland County child killer case. And everything seems to be directly tied into an active and widespread pedophile ring that was operating through Michigan in the 1970s. A few other people who did become persons of interest in the case include Archibald Sloan, who you might recall was mentioned early on in the investigation as a potential suspect. Back when police originally questioned Sloan, they took tape samples of hair and fibers from the man's 1966 Pontiac Bonneville. Those hair samples matched samples found on both the bodies of Mark Stebbins and Timothy King. Although those hairs could not be matched to Sloan himself, they also couldn't be matched to anyone else either. There was another hair recovered off the body of Christine Mihalich that did match a suspect, though. This hair matched a convicted sex offender named James Vincent Gunnels, who would have been a teenager himself around the time of the Oakland County child murders. DNA tests would show that Gunnels is a mitochondrial DNA match to a hair found in the body of Christine Mihalich. A mitochondrial match means the hair likely belongs to Gunnels or a male relative on his mother's side. But this also means it's not a 100% match to Gunnels, and could also belong to a lot of other people as well whom he's related to by blood. To this day, Gunnels denies having anything to do with the murders. Although he did admit to having been inside Christopher Bush's car many times, which is how he suggested one of his hairs might have gotten transferred to Christine Mihalich. Arch Sloan is currently serving a life sentence in prison for raping the 10-year-old child of a co-worker. It should also be noted that Sloan once worked as a volunteer firefighter in Pennsylvania, 
and had been issued a badge that might have proven useful in convincing young children he was a figure of authority such as a police officer. At one point, Sloan was offered a plea deal if he would confess to what he knew about the case, but he refused. Which can only make you wonder what that man knew that was so terrible he turned down a plea deal for it. One thing the man did reveal was that he told investigators he didn't even own that Bonneville at the time of the murders, and he sold it to the son of a state police lieutenant. According to some members of the Oakland County Task Force, that officer's son was looked at and cleared as a potential suspect. One further name that gets tossed into the mix of individuals connected to the case is Ted Lamborghini, a retired auto worker who Richard Lawson implicated as also being involved in the child pornography ring. In 2007, some investigators told Detroit Police Station WXYZ that Lamborghini was their top suspect in the case. After Lamborghini was arrested, he too was offered a plea deal that would have required him to take a polygraph test in the Oakland County child killings, but he completely refused. Instead, he did something surprising and pled guilty to all 17 counts against him. Despite this, Lamborghini insisted he had nothing to do with the Oakland County child killings. Although it should be noted that one disturbing details about the crime Lamborghini did admit to was that after assaulting a child, he would force the victim to take a bath and clean themselves of any evidence, just like what happened in the Oakland County case. When Detective Corey Williams confronted Lamborghini and asked him straight out if he committed the murders, the man simply said, God has forgiven me. Then in 2006, an unusual series of coincidences came together to once again shine a spotlight on Christopher Bush and Gregory Green. When Timothy King's older brother Chris was still a kid, he had been good friends with another boy named Patrick Coffey. Well, it turns out Patrick Coffey grew up to be a professional polygrapher. And in July of 2006, Coffey was in Las Vegas attending a polygraph examiner's convention. That was when he bumped into an associate and the two of them got to chatting about the Oakland County child killer case. At one point, the other man admitted he had once tested an individual who had confessed to murdering Timothy King. This, of course, sent Coffey's curiosity into overdrive. He had known Tim King personally through his older brother. He pressed the man to give him more details, but all the man would say was that he had been hired by an attorney to do a private session with the man's client. And since attorney-client privilege was still in place, couldn't divulge any more details than that. Coffee kept pressing him to tell him the man's name, but all he would say was that both the attorney and the man's client were now deceased. Later on, Coffee phoned his old friend Chris King and told him what the man said to him. Chris King gave this information to Detective Williams and he poured over the old records trying to figure out if any suspect matched the vague details provided in the polygrapher's story. Williams eventually narrowed it down to two suspects, one of whom he dismissed, but the other name was Christopher Bush. Now, before I tell you more about Bush, there is one particular story about his friend Gregory Green that I'd like to share with you. It's a story that comes from a book about the case by J. Reuben Appleman called The Kill Jar that I think speaks volumes about Bush and Green's possible involvement in the murder. For a few years, Green lived in Orange County, California, where he worked as a janitor and part-time youth baseball coach. During this time, he was arrested several times in California for assaulting children. On one occasion, he took one of the members of his Little League team into the woods and attempted to molest him. But when the boy fought back, Green squeezed the boy's nose and mouth shut, cutting off his airway until he stopped moving. 
Green wasn't sure if he killed the boy or not, so he lit a cigarette and put out the lit end on the boy's stomach. Realizing the boy was still alive, he then took the child to the nearest emergency room where he dumped him by the side of the road. The boy recovered and was able to tell police who had abducted him. Green was arrested and sent to a San Bernardino psychiatric facility for a year before being released. Upon his release, he then moved to Michigan where he struck up his partnership with Christopher Bush. There's been plenty of speculation made about whether there was some sort of cover-up in this case. Some amateur investigators and reporters have suggested that police may have been covering up the fact that they had Christopher Bush in custody. And less than a week after releasing him, Timothy King was abducted. There's also been much speculation made about the fact that Christopher Bush came from a wealthy and powerful family with the means to hide the scandal. Other independent polygraph examiners who looked at the results of the lie detector tests given to both Bush and Green were surprised to learn the men were cleared. According to some of these independent examiners, Green flat-out failed the polygraph exam he took after he was arrested in the 1970s, and Christopher Bush also showed signs of being deceptive, and at the very least should have been listed as inconclusive, not cleared. According to these independent polygraph examiners, there's just no logical reason any examiner who knew what they were doing should have ever cleared these two suspects. Yet for some reason, they were. Prior to their old family friend bringing all this to their attention, the King family had never heard of Christopher Bush and Gregory Green before. And when they learned that the police had these two credible suspects in custody, and less than a week after Bush walked free, Tim King was abducted, the family naturally became furious. The King family took what they knew to the media and began demanding answers from the police. For a while, this brought some new attention to the case, but eventually even that died down. On top of that, there was no way anyone would ever be able to question Gregory Green or Christopher Bush any further. That's because both men were dead. Gregory Green died in prison while serving a life sentence. One story that's been reported claims that he gave a deathbed confession to his cellmate once again putting the blame for the murders squarely on Christopher Bush's shoulders. In November 1978, Chris Bush allegedly took his own life by lying in bed and shooting himself in the head with a rifle. But the man's death has left open many questions, not only about the Oakland County child killer case, but also about the scene of his alleged suicide, which some investigators think looks staged. There are a lot of things about the death of Christopher Bush that don't add up. For one thing, there were four shell casings found in the room, but he was killed by only a single shot to the forehead. That's unusual as well, because most people who shoot themselves with a rifle do so by placing the barrel in their mouth or under their chin. It would have been especially awkward for Bush to have shot himself the way he did because his body was neatly tucked under the blankets on the bed, which would have made it difficult for him to cradle the butt of the rifle between his knees. Furthermore, there was no gunshot residue found on his body. And what was especially strange was there was no blood spatter in the room. As anyone who's ever watched any true crime documentaries can tell, that just plain doesn't make any sense. You also have to wonder about the possibility of some sort of cover-up based on what happened next. Less than 24 hours after Christopher Bush's body was discovered, the case was written off as an apparent suicide. There is no record of any sort of further forensic or medical examination being done after that. This, in and of itself, was unusual to say the least. Then, less than a month later, the entire Oakland County Child Killer Task Force was shut down. 
Did someone in authority know the person who committed the murders was now dead and there was no need for the task force anymore? Now, we don't know for certain that Christopher Bush was the Oakland County child killer, and likely never will. But in the bedroom where Bush's body was found, though, were two more very telling pieces of evidence. One was a set of blood-stained ligatures. The other was a disturbing pencil drawing that was tacked to the bedroom wall. It's a sketch of a young boy wearing a hoodie, and he's screaming. We don't know who did the drawing, but the likeness is uncanny. It looks a lot like Mark Stebbins, the first victim of the Oakland County child killer. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Mandy, Ashley, Carlin, and Sean. You're all incredible. And thanks to all my supporters for helping keep the lights on. Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. We also have a merch store where you can find a wide selection of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and my store in the show notes. Another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Then tell your friends and family about our show and have them subscribe and review us as well. Currently, we're on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to check us out on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time.